Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's March 31st, and much of the talk amongst global strategists is of something they call the global decoupling of, uh, of, of the economy between Asian economies and Western economies. One person who is an expert on Asia is the Singapore-based geostrategist, um, Parag Khanna, whose latest book is called The Future is Asian. Uh, Parag, uh, much of the talk in the US at least focuses on, at least it seems to be the success of the Asian model in confronting the coronavirus. Is that true? Well, I'd, uh, well, first of all, Andrew, great to chat with you again, and I'm glad that you're organizing these these daily discussions on such an important topic. Um, so I don't think there is such a thing as an Asian model in terms of one coherent one, but Asia has various models, many different kinds of governments. I always have to remind people that more people in Asia live in democracies than in non-democracies. Obviously, there's a particular 1.4 billion people known as the Chinese who live in an authoritarian country, but the vast majority of Asians do not. They live in democratic societies, and those such as Japan and South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, and certainly from the standpoint of effectiveness of the response, a country you could add to the list is Singapore, where I live. Um, you know, these are uh, you know quite democratic states. Certainly, they're very transparent when it comes to their policy responses. They're certainly very competent states with strong public administration, good healthcare systems, elderly populations they need to care for, strong investment in R and D and technology and medical sectors. All of those things have proven to be quite useful background, obviously, uh, for a crisis like this. So there isn't an Asian model because then you would have to include China in that model and not many people would praise the way uh, China has gone about this. And, and one of the things that, uh, again, I think always has to be reminded because, you know, in in the in the same public media that you and I are reading and consuming, you have people saying every day that China is going to take advantage of this to press its uh, global leadership in the absence uh, of America's, uh, you know, proper handling of the virus. And I say to myself, who are they joking? Because the majority of the human population lives in countries that are um, in China's region and on China's border. And not one of those people, and I can speak confidently on behalf of about three and a half billion people with the following sentence, none of them will ever forget that this is a Chinese virus. So I'm not condoning either Mike Pompeo or Donald Trump calling this the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus. I am saying that you'd be a fool to go out there and say, aha, yes, China is going to use its soft power to impress the world uh, in its, uh, you know, impose its leadership in the, um, in the aftermath of this crisis. That is preposterous from an intellectual standpoint when you think about how the vast majority of the human population views the situation, which is quite consistent with reality because we live here, uh, you know, at, at China's doorstep. So, so okay. So let's let's split Asia up into China and the rest. I know that's a bit of a simplification too, but for the purposes of this conversation, um, is there any truth in the 
successful way in which China has confronted the virus, or is that mostly mythological? Well, you know, I mean, we're not epidemiologists here. We're not privy to the information that of in terms of what's gone on in China. When you think about the latest reporting out of Wuhan that, you know, 50,000 people actually died, you know, 7 million people fled the city um, and so forth. It's hard to paint a rosy picture. We all knew that China had very impressive state capacity to move mountains and relocate people and surge, you know, uh, human um, sort of, you know, or, or, or state resources to a problem when it needs to. We didn't need this virus for China to demonstrate that, right? Um, so the fact that they've done so yet again in this circumstance is neither here nor there at some level. Um, so, you know, the fact is that it's not a transparent government. It's never been a transparent government. It's always been self-interested in terms of party first. Again, we all knew these things, so we should not be surprised by them at all. So do we give them some kind of extra credit uh, for at least, uh, you know, at least according to their data, uh, stamping out uh, or, you know, any new cases of the, of the virus infection uh, indigenously, uh, quite frankly, not really. Well, let's then look at the rest of Asia, particularly South Korea and Singapore and perhaps Japan, which are being used, at least in the US, as models for successfully confronting the virus in terms of social discipline and cohesion. Is that true? Yes, of course. I mean, that's absolutely true. So I mentioned some of the technological factors and, and public administration factors earlier. But yes, there is also the cultural cohesion. It's kind of one of what I call the so-called new Asian values, um, you know, alongside a technocratic government and a strong state role in the economy, especially in times of need. And the third is this idea of, you know, social cohesion, national identity, not in the docile sense of obeying government propaganda, again, especially for this part Part of the conversation, as you said, we're talking about the democratic states here. It's just about the collective shared experience and the desire for a kind of uh, a sense that, uh, you know, some would call it communitarianism or communalism, um, you know, but they have, and even in the most diverse societies, such as many Asian countries are ethnically, if you think about Singapore, Malaysia, and elsewhere, um, there's just a, a, a common sense, you might even call it, around what things need to be done. And yes, of course, they have the memory of the SARS epidemic from about 17 years ago. And since you know many people in this region are elderly, they obviously have a very strong, vivid memory of that experience when there were numerous fatalities. And so they, are, they said, they went into lockdown. They said, we know what we have to do. We've been here before. Let's observe social distancing. And we're all in this together. And when a society doesn't have the ability to say that, or when the leadership can't bring itself to say it, that exposes flaws on multiple levels, and obviously that costs lives. So it's not merely some kind of uh, petty intellectual debate. But again, to reinforce the point, you know, for for all of your your listeners, um, these are not automatons and robots, right? For those don't under, who understand Asia very well, these are hyper-educated uh, and fairly individualistic people, quite frankly, you know, who have their own professional lives at stake, who live in very high-income countries, and are accustomed to all of the accoutrements of modernity that that you might be used to in Europe or the United States, if not, quite frankly, better. Um, and yet, still, they have the capability, the mental capacity, if you will, to say, you know what. But we've all got to take one for the team here and not go party, you know, on um, on South Beach or, you know, a spring break in Daytona Beach or whatever the case may be. And again, I would just call that common sense. I don't want to make everything some kind of essentialized kind of, you know, cultural conversation. I'm an American here, you know, uh, but but living in Asia and just observing the difference between common sense and lack of common sense. Again, I know this is a, 
uh, a hard thing to generalize about, but what's the view from Singapore in particular, where you're based, of the way in which the US is or isn't confronting the virus? I mean, you know, the regime here, the government here is not necessarily surprised by the ineptitude that they see around them, whether it is uh, their dealings with the Trump administration going back the last several years, whether it is, quite frankly, even dealing with the Obama administration and the, and the you know, just how perplexed people were that, uh, you know, they couldn't get the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement over the line and things like this. So they've always been very coy and diplomatic about expressing how disappointed they are in the lack of leadership on, you know, global public goods issues uh, by the U.S. And so this would just be yet another instance of that. And again, this one just has these immediate feedback loops, though, where there's a lot of market uncertainty that's caused loss of life and so forth. So there's a lot at stake here. This is not just a matter of uh, delaying a trade agreement. Um, so, you know, they're, they're disappointed. And again, other Asians are as well. And, you know, I don't want to, again, we could, if we want to get into anecdotes, you know, obviously, there's no doubt that you hear, uh, you know, two things. One, you've got thousands of Singaporean students, uh, you know, who, have, who are at uh, law school, university, business school abroad, all over the world. And they're coming back by the plane load each day. And then they're going into, into you know, quarantine. Although quarantine here is apparently in five-star hotels on the beach. So they apparently aren't complaining, at least judging from their Instagram feeds. Um, and they're coming back saying, my God, like, uh, I don't even know if I want to go back to the UK. You know, and you've got Asians saying, um, you know, I don't think that I want to go back to the U.S. even on, you know, business travel because God knows what I might catch in terms of uh, virus, right? So you've got this situation where, again, anecdotally, where, whereas, it, you know, initially it would be, uh, you know, everyone wants to go to the shining city on the hill. Now you've got more and more Asians. Again, this is yet another reason. Let's not forget that, let's say, anti-Asian racism in the United States and the general cultural environment created by, by Trump and the far right has not been welcoming you know, or hospitable to many Asians. Now you have yet another reason for um, Asians in general uh, you know, to say, you know what, maybe I'll just uh, stick with local universities. They're just as good anyway, and life here is better and so on. So what's so fascinating about this is, again, I said anecdotes only have limited value. However, we are about to go through this great global experiment because we're having this demographic migratory reset where, you know, millions of people are going back to their country of origin or nationality to ride out this pandemic, right? Americans going back to America, Chinese going back to China, right? Europeans going back to Europe, to Europe. You're seeing the advisory from the German government saying, if you are German in the United States, you know, more or less cancel your lease, uh, you know, <laughs> cancel your enrollment, come back home, right? Um, so we're having, we're going to have this great global reset, and afterwards, imagine sort of this, uh, you know, this this point in time, it could be six months from now or a year from now, where the world is declared virus free, hypothetically. And here's what you'll start to see happen. People will say, you know what, I'm not sure I want to stay in country X that has such a horrible government and is so poorly prepared to deal with uh, these kinds of, you know, uh, um, uh, sudden outbreaks of a virus or other kinds of so-called black swan events, I want to move somewhere else. And it'll be so interesting to watch over the next two to three, five years where people decide to go. If obviously if they have the the credentials or the you know permission to move to those places. Uh Parag, I know you still believe that the future, at least the 21st century future, is or will be Asian. But you've also written this 
quite provocative thing in Quartz, suggesting that there are five things that won't change in the post-pandemic age. Uh, everyone's talking about what will change. Everyone's talking about after the virus. You're suggesting that the, the core elements of globalization in the 21st century won't change. Well, it's hard to, a couple of things, a couple of caveats. I mean, I'm not sure what necessarily core elements, you know, means migration, globalization is so many different things. It's migration, it's flows of data, it's flows of goods, capital services, you know, ideas and so forth. So it's many, many different things. And globalization as embodied in supply chains is always shifting and seeking the path of least resistance. So one of the things I point out is that global trade was becoming more regional before the pandemic, right? Because of the trade war and because of a variety of other factors, the, the United States' largest trading partners are Mexico, Canada, uh, the EU, and then China, right? That was before the pandemic. So we can't say that the pandemic is is yet another kind of, or, you know, a major cause of the, you know, retrenchment of supply chains, right? Or that U.S. industrial policy, if we actually had one, was a major cause. It was already happening. So one of my points in that piece is regionalism has been going on for a long time. 70% of European trade is within Europe, right? I mean, just think about your countrymen in, in Britain uh, who learned that the hard way, you know, after Brexit. Oh, wait, most of our trade is with the EU. Oops. Uh, you know, 60% of Asian trade is within Asia. So we have been in a regional... You say the regionalism is the new globalism, but isn't that a contradiction in terms? If you have regionalism, you don't have globalism. Well, there are many things that are still global, right? You know, when, when articles uh, say the internet is creaking at the seams, you know, what they mean is that there's a huge global demand for bandwidth and global conversations taking place in global data streams. And when Netflix and, and uh, whomever and YouTube have to slow down, uh, you know, or, or, or decrease uh, quality of resolution of imaging, you know, because there's such a high demand on bandwidth, you can't really say that there isn't global data transfer and global exchange of data going on. And that is every bit as much globalization as how many people are getting on a plane uh, and flying transatlantic or transpacific, or how many container ships are put on a tanker and shipped through the Suez Canal, right? That is globalization. You know, you may not see it physically, and it is certainly very poorly accounted for in global trade statistics and discounted. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. It is a huge part of what globalization is. So again, as I say, migration right now is at a total standstill, but it's going to pick up again. So some parts of globalization accelerate, some recede. Uh, but the point is, we have the capacity, we have the connectivity to achieve whatever degree of globalization is optimal. Is it a good thing to have you know, oil and gas resources extracted in one part of the world and put on tankers and, and sailed around the world it's, it, uh, to another place. It's horrible. It's horrible for the global environment. It wouldn't be good for our global society to continue that when instead you could have more localism and regionalism and regional, sorry, renewable power and alternative energy sources, right? So it would look bad for globalization statistically to not have global oil trade, but it would be a fantastic thing for us to achieve. So I'm not pro-global globalization just for the sake of it, I'm for us having optionality. And you don't have optionality if you don't have connectivity. So we can restore whatever connectivity we want to have at a global level and whatever we need, and we can either use it or not use it. It's not an ideological thing. Uh, very briefly, you also suggest that, um, that in the post-crisis world, automation will accelerate, that uh, this crisis is not going to change the way in which 
smart machines will replace people in the workplace. And I think this is really critical because obviously this has been well underway for, you know, a decade and a half, if not longer. And, you know, as I, as I point out, most uh, economists have come around that to the fact that, uh, you know, we've properly documented that more jobs have been lost through technological automation than outsourcing. And so obviously, if you think about this from the perspective of a business making investment, they're saying to themselves, well, you know, um, what am I going to do with this, with whatever cash they have on hand in terms of future business investment? If you're Hyundai, and I think that's the example I use, if you're Hyundai Motors in uh, South Korea, and you were procuring automobile parts from Wuhan, and your own South Korean factory workers got sick, and there's a global demand shock, you just suffered a triple whammy, right? So Hyundai still exists. Uh, but moving forward, they're going to say, well, you know what, let's invest in robots so that we can make our car parts onshore in South Korea and robots so that we can keep making cars even if the humans are sick, right? So you are going to see an acceleration of automation in in, uh, in any number of, of industries. And again, we were seeing that anyway. And that's the point of the article, right? Is to say there are certain things that were already happening. So whatever happens one year, two years, three years from now, there are many things that we should not be blaming uh, the pandemic for. In fact, the pandemic may just be accelerating things that were already well underway. Perhaps the most disturbing prediction you make is that this crisis is only going to compound inequality and make the underclass or the poor more and more dependent on the state and on state handouts. Yes. So again, you know, sort of the the realization that monetary policy had sort of, you know, run its course and that zero interest rates and so forth were no longer a sufficient, um, you know, transmission mechanism of, of stimulus or incentivizing investment. That's been, you know, well known for some years. Hence the calls uh, by many people, you know, various sides of the aisle. Um to increase, uh, you know, fiscal spending and stimulus and so forth. So now what you have is sort of, you know, you call it a bailout or life support or disaster relief uh, for the bottom 50%, bottom 80% really of the population. And the question becomes, how long are they going to need it? And the answer is probably a very long time. Now, remember, this is a different kind. Again, this is just disaster relief at the moment. You and I can remember back to when Obama was elected during the financial crisis, and there was uh, plans for you know $1 trillion of shovel-ready job-creating investments in new infrastructure and, and so forth. That never materialized, and it certainly hasn't under Trump either. So we're 20 years behind on infrastructure investment, and $2 trillion uh, stimulus in none of that actually none of that two trillion or three trillion or whatever it becomes actually puts a shovel in the ground right that's just keeping people you know sort of um uh off off the streets if you will so i think that is uh, still a very very dangerous ground that we're in in terms of the um you know the, the kind of economic landscape for the average household and again it was already quite dire straits as you well know so you're predicting Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Andrew Yang 2.0 in the future where uh, the, the cause for fundamental restructuring of the, of the capitalist economy will appear more and more attractive. Well, I, you know, I mean, I worry about that sort of, you know, almost uh, clear cut uh, separation between, um, you know, the sort of capitalism as it was and capitalism as it needs to be. We heard that, you know, as you remember, 
during the financial crisis, right? We heard about the 1%, the 99%, the need for greater regulation and so forth. And we didn't really see huge uh, reforms that at least none that couldn't be quickly undone by the Trump administration. So there's a difference between bringing in a new kind of uh, government that has a more you know, pro-family, pro-welfare orientation versus fundamentally reforming the structure of the political economy, right? And the latter is not, you know, necessarily in the cards uh, in the U.S. I don't think that there's necessarily the voting power for it um, in terms of Democratic Party, you know, controlling the White House and both, um, you know, chambers of, uh, of the legislature. So I don't think that's still literally hypothetical, A. And B, I'm not so sure that there necessarily is in the Democratic Party side a truly coherent understanding or platform or set of policies that you would, you know, at least from an academic standpoint, genuinely say constitutes a restructuring of, you know, capitalism as we know it. This is why I don't speak about Western capitalism as some kind of coherent phenomenon. I mean, again, and the response to the pandemic also demonstrates that the Anglo-American economic model is quite different, obviously, from the Western European welfare state. You know, if you think about um, a German citizen right now, they're going to get something like 80% or 100% of their income for at least a year. Right. That's not the situation the average American is is in right now. And, uh, you know, the average, you know, or Canada, you know, Canada's economy is quite different and its political economy is quite different from that of the United States. It's much more like a Western European country. So a welfare state uh, versus the Anglo-American model is just one of several divides uh, within um, you know, Western uh, capitalism, and those divides are more and more apparent. So whatever reforms happen in the United States, they won't, they might eventually, ideally, maybe uh, over whatever period of time, and it's certainly going to take longer than we would want it to, um, nudge America a bit closer to what you see in a place like Canada uh, or Europe. But it's a long way from actually being that. Finally, Parag, you're stuck at home in Singapore. I'm in California. Many of our listeners are all over the world. Uh, one book that they should be reading to get a better perspective on what's happening in the world today. Well, many people may already have read it, but I'm a big fan of uh, my friend Peter Frankopan of Oxford and his book, uh, The Silk Roads. Uh, he recently did The New Silk Roads, which is a shorter, kind of more contemporary volume. But The Silk Roads is, is absolutely classic, uh, you know, a, a centuries-long sweep of history about the great Eurasian space. And that's the kind of the geographical world that I've been enamored with since I was in high school, you know, and uh, obviously you'll pick up a tidbit or two about the last plague uh, if you read it. Uh, there's a children's edition. So if you are uh, indeed stuck at home with your kids, there is a beautiful illustrated uh, edition as well with very large uh, font and pictures and stuff. I've got a couple of copy of those copies of that uh, that I've looked through with my kids. So um, that book, The Silk Roads, it's nice and thick. It'll take you a long time to read. It may even carry you through until the end of this pandemic. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, 
we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.